city around you wavers in the rain. Between every drop, something else glimmers and shifts like you're having a bad dream. Hopefully it is a bad dream and not the city is changing around you, changing you. Are you also trapped in a skew? Come and see if you can free yourself from the living city of horrors right here on Radio Drama Revival. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, a podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. It's October, which means it's time for a haunting. In this case, the whole warped and fascinating city of Askew, which changes to suit its hunger for its inhabitants. It's not a city so much as a living being trying to be a city. A David Ward is trapped inside. I Am an Askew is inspired by the works of Junji Ito and Thomas Ligotti in terms of style and the approach to a horror that crushes hope. But in a time of a pandemic, Askew becomes especially disturbing, as these are terrors delivered on the backbone of architectural horror and urban isolation. What does it mean to feel and to be alone in a city full of people? How do you deal with living somewhere that shifts and changes constantly, physically, rendering you incapable of even planning a trip to the coffee shop? Sound familiar? This is a horror story I love. It creeps me out in all the right ways, and many of its episodes have lingered with me in the dark. But also, it's a kind of long exhalation. It's a relief to find a place where my darkest thoughts are expressed and followed through to their conclusion. Invariably, it makes me feel less alone in my own personal askew. Something has happened to me in the years since I was brought to askew. An epiphany, if you like. People no longer frighten me. Places frighten me. I'm never startled here, walking at night by a silhouetted figure staggering down an empty street towards me. Other human beings are always a welcome sight when you're out and alone in askew. I never shiver at the thought of a ghost, which is, after all, just like a person, just a little beyond a person, with thoughts and motives that are all too personal for my tastes. But I have stopped in the seeping drizzle of the stranger's quarter, finding myself at a sudden intersection of neon signs and brothels and chemists that was, I swear, something else entirely the last time I was walking here. Not knowing where to go, not knowing where I am, not knowing where, if anywhere, I came from. I have walked down stone alleys in Askew, that turned further in upon themselves than seemed, structurally speaking, possible. I have wandered stairways that fell so deep into the darkness of the old town that I thought I could look down and see the stars again. I have arrived at the black cast-iron steps leading up to my apartment, and turned the key in my lock, and stood there aghast at a hallway that I could no longer be certain was my hallway paintings that hung in all of the wrong places, objects and sounds that did not belong, a bathroom mirror that reflected the wrong face and the wrong flesh. 
Navigating this city is an uncoiling. How can I describe it to you? Imagine the cry of an unseen child somewhere in these steep and winding streets, a cry of distress or of pain floating musically over the rooftops in the darkness, the noise swelling and worsening as you run, trying desperately to find the source of it, and still the cry builds in agony and terror with every step, as if you yourself, in confronting the nightmare, are causing something terrible to happen. Imagine running your hand up a lover's back to find a spine that's too bony and crooked and wet with... I don't mean to put you off coming here. It's been a difficult few months, and the rain never stops, and I am so alone. My name is David Ward. I am in Askew. Episode 1. Correspondence. Foreigners find it difficult to survive in Askew, a city that constantly reminds us just how unnecessary we are. But some of us find work, or purpose, or a sense of resolution. Some of us find ways to endure here. At present, my regular source of income in the city comes from a popular broadsheet known as the Askew Tribunal, which employs me as translator, editor, and sole proprietor of the international news section. This is not taxing. The international news section of the Askew Tribunal occupies a single page every Saturday. Half a page if they need the space for adverts. The only difficult part of my work, then, is choosing which stories from the outside world to include. It needs to be simple, emotive, preferably arresting in its cruelty or morbidity, something that can be easily glossed into a short paragraph for disinterested readers. I'm particularly fond of floods. Hundreds drown, thousands drown. It's all good stuff. I occupy a desk up on the 14th floor of the tribunal building. It's peaceful up there. I'm alone with the rain on the windows and the moaning white radiators. In previous years, I was forced to share the 14th floor with our lifestyle section on page 16. But this arrangement came to an end one Tuesday when every member of that team simultaneously received an email with a subject line that simply said, in bold capital letters, Away Day. No further context, nothing in the message body. And of course, after that, the Lifestyle team members began to debate exactly when the Away Day was taking place, and who had organised it, and whether there were likely to be snacks or lunch prepared for the Away Day. Then just a few minutes later... Rumours began to spread that there were already three luxurious tour coaches waiting outside the building to take them to the away day. Worse, that anyone from the lifestyle team who failed to make it onto the coaches in time would be left behind and have to work through the afternoon, no matter how unfair that sounded. And in a sudden spirit of madness, the entire lifestyle team began to get to their feet and logged out of their computers and found themselves jammed up against each other in the corridor, vying to be the first one to reach the coat rack so that they could successfully leave for the away day, pushing and shoving each other while seizing each other's jackets and scarves, trying to fit them over their own arms and shoulders, gnashing their teeth and cursing each other for making them late for the away day, punching and slapping and biting into each other's arms and faces. At this point I left to smoke a cigarette up on the roof. 
and by the time I returned, the room was empty. Although there was a bloody tooth left on the carpet, and someone had taken the time to scrawl, Away Day, in broad, blocky capitals across the whiteboard. Nobody seems to know where Lifestyle went. Investigations are ongoing, but the editor simply puts another page of adverts on page 16, which is more profitable anyway, and myself, I enjoy the quiet. I don't want to talk to you about the SQ Tribunal as such. I want to talk about the Letters and Lonely Hearts column, which goes out every other Saturday on page 10 of the weekend pull-out section. These are generally composed in the basement of the Tribunal building by the correspondence editor, who always dreamed of writing novels for a living, and now, in a cruel twist of fate, is forced to invent endless 60-character love stories and present them as reality. Tragic affairs, sinister fetishists, and hopeless cases. A cast of hundreds every month, all dating one another and searching for each other, and frequently, although the correspondence editor is the only one keeping track of it all, betraying each other with one another. I frequently grow bored after long periods of writing about floods and come downstairs to smoke spliffs with a correspondence editor in the basement. She'll explain to me what's about to happen this week, the stories that will be written and the ones that will never make it into the pages of the pull-out section. Fitness Mad M52 is in fact a 65-year-old homicidal maniac whose artfully created profile will catch the attention of Lovelaw and F43, who he'll end up bludgeoning to death against his sink. Shy Bookworm M33 will arrange dinner with kinky outgoing M21, but it's all a prank set up by his students, and he'll sit there alone in the restaurant all night, coming to realise the intense depths of his loneliness. There are usually a scant handful of legitimate letters as well, and we'll spend some time mocking them for their banality, their cowardice, their total lack of self-knowledge. A woman has fallen in love on the Askew Underground Network, and beseeches the man just once to turn from the shadows and let her see his face. A pensioner has lost a wallet full of money, and offers nothing but gratitude for its safe return. An ungendered writer threatens to kill again. Dull stuff coming through at no great pace and in no great volume, a small weekly pile of greasy envelopes in the correspondence editor's in-tray. There's an email inbox which goes entirely unused. Today, however, as I step into the correspondence editor's den, she cries rather excitedly at me in Escovian, Have a read of this. She leans over in her chair, spilling ash across the manky carpeted floor, and hands me a plain brown envelope that's already been torn open. I take it from her and remove a single sheet of white paper. It's been typed, jaggedly, as if by someone who's had a stroke or palsy, slanting down towards the bottom right corner of the page. My Mr. Howe. Flesh. You. I. Crave. Touch. Mattress writhing explosive with fleas. Us. A sight unseen. Your. Mrs. Y. That's it. Nothing more to it than that. I turn the paper sheet over in my hands as if expecting to see something else. I check the return address on the envelope. 14 Croppers Square. The more I read it, the correspondence editor says languidly, the more I fall in love with it. 
It's such a nice distraction from the usual garbage and clichés. This is something new, David. It reads like it was written by an algorithm, I tell her. Or a lunatic. The return address is a great big nothing, she says. I went down there myself to check it out during my lunch break. Nothing there, not even a P.O. box. Just an empty entrance bricked up between two houses. So it's a prank, I reply. You're not seriously thinking about publishing this, are you? Why not, she says with a shrug. Mr. Howe deserves a chance to get to read this for himself. Two weeks later, I'm sitting alone in the Burgundy Café when I think to check the Askew Tribunal again. Right there, on page 10 of the pull-out section, is a reply from Mr. Howe to Mrs. Y. It reads in full, My Mrs. Y, complications in town, withering in absence of you, urgently requesting soft eyes, biting lips, fingernails, also flesh. Your Mr. Howe. The Saturday after next, I'm lying on my apartment floor, waiting for the noise from beyond the wall to dissipate, when I think to check, and yes, she's replied again. My Mr. Howe, soon, but not today. Blooming tongues, lapping fingers, writhing eyes, your Mrs. Y. I find myself starting to daydream over and over about this nonsense, this near sense, This language that says nothing but feels so rich with sensation. Am I supposed to be reading a coded message here? Should I interpret it as just another prank, a piss take? Or is this an actual conversation between two soulmates, so perfectly in tune with each other that there's no need for their words to make sense to anyone outside of themselves? Or that night I lie awake in my empty double bed, trying not to hear the noise from beyond the wall and imagine myself possessing a love as intense, as individual, as the passion of Mr. Howe and Mrs. Y. A couple of months later, the weekend editor calls me into his office for a chat. There have been complaints about letters and lonely hearts. Readers don't like the ongoing exchanges between Mrs. Y and Mr. Howe. They find them distressing, off-puttingly strange, impossible to empathise with. The weekend editor, a timid and fearful man, has decided to remove the letters from his pages forthwith. He wants me to talk to the correspondence editor, as he's worried she'll take the news badly. I know the two of you are close, he says, doing something with his eyebrows. I find the correspondence editor in her basement. She looks distractedly up at me from a task that apparently consists of grabbing hefty stacks of papers and unopened brown envelopes and stuffing them into her gym bag. I was sorry to hear about Mr. Howe and Mrs. Y, I tell her, and she shoots me a grin of sour agreement. I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier, she says. Disappointing, I must admit. We hadn't even published Letter 17 yet. I can't pretend to understand it, but it's the breakout letter so far. It's definitely going places. She sifts through the paper sheets, tuts in satisfaction as she finds the right one, and hands it over to me. My Mrs. Howe. Something tautens. Something slackens. Something spools over, entwines. Something coalesces. Your Mr. Y. I cannot tell you how thrilling it is 
in a city of dead dreams and streets that wind into nothing, to be a witness to something real happening. I lower the correspondence. They changed names, I ask her. She stops and stares into thin air as if she's quite alone. I think it's symbolic of their closeness, she says after a moment. Their compatibility. For how and why there is no gender, there are no roles, they might as well be one another. After that, I can tell you, it really starts to heat up. In, you know, their manner of speaking. I'm going to go through them all again this weekend, really binge on them. I lick my lips. How many letters are there? I ask her. Could I have a look at them all myself, perhaps? The correspondence editor says, with a curious air of personal pride, 45 at the last count. They come in several times a day now. We usually have two or three waiting for us in the morning, and then a couple more come in as late deliveries. So honestly, I'm not too bothered if he wants to pull the plug. I'm beginning to think it doesn't matter if we publish them at all, so long as someone's here to actually read them. They want their love to be witnessed, I say. Well, there's no harm in that. So, can I have a look? The correspondence editor zips up her gym bag, tells me to have a good weekend, and makes for the stairs without answering my question. You might think that I'd feel frustrated by the jealousy with which she's guarding the letters. Not at all. If anything, the more of the correspondence that I read, the more I find myself coming to the conclusion that if anyone is the intended recipient, it's me. The correspondence editor still sees it as a joke or a puzzle to be solved. She doesn't truly understand the passion of how and why like I do. It's as if they're straining out to reach me any way they can, but they're struggling to find the right path. Anyway, I don't feel jealous. I simply resolve to myself that I will wake up nice and early next week, come into the office before anyone else arrives, and take the next batch of correspondence for myself. It's a good plan, but it doesn't work. Because when I arrive at the tribunal office, the entrance is blocked by the heavy grey dumpster which usually stands against the wall, but has now been unceremoniously dumped onto its side, scattering plain brown envelopes and rotting garbage alike into the street. Inside, the correspondence editor is on her knees, scrambling to pick up as many envelopes as she can fit into her hands. The senior custodian is standing over the dumpster, screaming abuse at her, stamping down with his foot as if he is genuinely trying to catch her fingers beneath his boot heel. Go on, get them out of here if you want them so much. Take your Mrs. Watt and Mr. Wen and get them out of here. I don't want to see them ever again. I ask what seems to be the problem. The senior custodian turns to look at me. His moustache shudders with rage. The postbag, he says crammed, the front door overflowing, letters floating down the steps into the street. I've had enough of it, I tell you, I'm ready to quit. And then just as soon as I've finished piling them into the dumpster, she sneaks down here and starts taking them all out again. I stoop down and say, gently, hey. She only half turns. The correspondence editor looks like she hasn't slept like she hasn't stopped reading in days, hasn't thought to bathe or sleep. Her eyes are glowing bright white within rings of muddy purple. He was going to throw them away, she snarls. Tell him, David, we can't lose track of this, we can't let them go, we need to get to the end of it, see what happens at the end of it. She waves the clump of paper sheets frantically in her hand, 
and a single one slips free from her grasp. I snatch it from the air, quickly before she can react. My fingers close upon it, and she looks up at me, hurt and confusion spreading across her face. Later, colleagues at the tribunal, people who would instinctively avoid me if not for the whiff of second-hand intrigue, will ask me if the correspondence editor was writing the letters herself. The only answer I can give them that they're likely to accept is this. The look in her eyes when the works of how and why stand before her, and when they're taken away. A fervent anticipation, a desperate hope, a fast-growing dependency. Before I get a chance to read this latest correspondence for myself, the senior custodian exclaims, This is the last straw. Really it is. I stuff the letter quickly into my pocket. He's picked up a plain, flat cardboard box, half opened in the dingy dawn light. Nestled within, on a bed of black silk, is an assortment of dark shapes. Now they're sending chocolates to each other. He shouts, chocolates and love letters to the office of a damned newspaper. He hurls the box to the ground. Its contents scatter across the pavement. I reach down absentmindedly to pick up a small nugget that rolls across to rest against my shoe and lift it to the light. It takes me a moment to realise that I'm not holding chocolate at all. It's a round lump of pink, unbroken skin. Living meat, pocked with veins. I jab into its surface with my nail and I'm rewarded with a small crescent of bright red liquid spurting out around my thumb. There's something tangible beneath too, hard and gristly, rebounding at my touch like bone. Flesh, I say aloud, thrilling at the sound. Not chocolate, but flesh. The senior custodian leaps backwards like a marionette from the upended chocolate box, as if he genuinely thinks something is going to come crawling out from under it towards him. They're cutting pieces off each other, he shrieks. This has gone too far. It's really gone too far. I'm going to talk to the editorial lead about this. You've both been encouraging it. The correspondence editor just crouches there on the edge of the dumpster and stares down at her own feet. But the fascinating thing is that the flesh chocolates don't actually seem to have come from any part of a human being at all. There are no fingerprints, no wounds, no hints of an incision. Each shape is individual. Cylinders, squares, five-armed starfishes, veins circling the surface. It's as if something wished to create the concept, the platonic ideals of a box of chocolates, using only the raw materials it had to hand. Playing out the motions, the ritual of romance, for us or through us. For me. I glance at the correspondence editor to see if she feels the same way I do, but she's gazing at the ground, clumps of paper clutched in her hands, shivering gently with exhaustion or cold. A single nervous tear streaks down her face. Just as I suspected all along. She doesn't have what it takes to follow this to its natural conclusion. She was never truly the intended recipient. These words are meant for me. How does that make me feel? Triumphant. Vindicated. Resolved. After a while, we help her up and tidy away the rest of the papers into her satchel. The senior custodian won't let us keep the flesh chocolates, however. 
Instead, spitefully and stubbornly, he burns them up in an old steel drum in the parking lot. He's still standing there, staring into the flames, squinting in the dying light, as I leave the office that evening. The senior custodian doesn't return to work on Tuesday. Nor does the correspondence editor, although her absence is less appreciated, since the Letters and Lonely Hearts page can now be removed entirely from the weekend pullout and replaced with an advert about the new shopping centre that's opening on the edge of the endless square. The correspondence between Mr Howe and Mrs Y, too, stops coming. A sense of general relief rolls like a rainstorm through the tribunal offices. Several workers embark on ill-considered affairs with one another. A risky new drug is widely embraced. A deadly heart attack is barely noticed. The Saturday after next, I receive an anxious call from a place on Winded Lane. The correspondence editor has vanished. Her landlady, it transpires, had just moments before physically broken into the apartment after three days of staring at the plain brown envelopes that were protruding, multiplying, like spines from her letterbox in the cracks of her front door. Apparently my phone number was written on a post-it note placed on the fridge door. I don't know what she expected me to do for her, but I'm glad for the gesture, since I now have unhindered access to every single one of the letters. At first, to my irritation, the landlady hysterically insists that we should be hunting for signs of the correspondence editor, but a quick turnout of her drawers and cabinets reveals that she's taken her suitcase and passport with her, and soon enough I'm left alone to get on with my reading. There's no specific order to any of it. Some of it is typed, some of it appears to be love letters formed from newspaper headlines, from textbooks, from Lonely Hearts columns. One paper sheet is simply a medical diagram of a heart, veins and ventricles marked out and described. Another sheet depicts an immense and awful close-up of the human eye. There's something else as well. Placed in the windowsill, limply tilted towards the light, is a flower that's been crafted from that same peculiar protoplasmic flesh, pink and wet, a horrific and gorgeously imperfect attempt to create a lily. Wrapped in translucent plastic, tied with a crimson bow. The stem is made from something hard and twisted and tubular, I can't tell exactly what. Peeling back its petals reveals a soft red interior and a circle of bone-white polished molars set into a thick line of gum surrounding the stamen. It's wet and supplicating beneath my fingers. This is something new. It feels like a step forward, like a proposition. Hurriedly, before the landlady has a chance to return, I scoop everything up in my carry bag and bring it home to my place in the stranger's quarter. I wake up early the next morning and come out of the bedroom to discover, to my disappointment, that my letterbox is not overflowing as I imagined it would be. My letterbox is not packed tightly with folded plain brown envelopes from Mrs. Howe and Mr. Y that have additionally not been pressed into the jams of my door frame or the edges of the kitchen window. There's nothing waiting for me outside my door when I open it. It takes a moment for this to sink in. They haven't spoken to me. They haven't wanted to speak to me. Disappointment is too small a word for the hurt in my heart. I feel alive to their injustice, 
to their cruelty. I feel like a child whose mother has just aimed a random kick at its shins. I trudge back to my bed and begin to struggle into my trousers. And then I see the blinking light on my mobile phone screen. I have 32 new messages. No, I have 33 new messages. I sit heavily at the breakfast table, the weak askew dawn light pervading through the blinds, and hold the phone up to my ear. Silence. Minutes of silence, so long that I begin to feel as if there's been some mistake. But then I realise that I'm not hearing silence at all, because, rising and falling like a heartbeat, someone is breathing into my ear. And washing over it, merging and following the noise, is the breath of a second entity. They don't sound at all like I imagined them. And yet... Another moment passes, and then someone says, in an abrupt and robotic voice that sounds as if it was snatched from some audio recording or public transport announcement, Lips. A second voice agrees. Lips. The first voice cries out. Skin. The second voice echoes back. Skin. The first voice asks. Meat. And the second voice answers, meat. It is very likely just my imagination, but I find myself thinking that the flesh flower perched in my windowsill has begun to crane forward towards me, tilting its wet puckered lips towards the source of the sound. I glance down at my phone again and realise that while I was listening, how and why have contacted me again. I have 33 new messages. I find my notepad and a pen. I place the phone on loudspeaker and I begin to scribble down as much as I can. I am no longer just an interpreter. I am a translator of their love, a carrier of their correspondence. Finally, after so many years, I am a participant in something. I don't remember sleeping that night. Or the next. I do recall whispered messages of love passing through me in voicemail messages, in email bodies, in written word, and in television broadcasts. I recall the madness, the impossibility of trying to scribble it all down, leaping from platform to platform, juggling all of it at once, trying to do justice to two voices babbling at one another, unceasing, unswerving, entirely fixed upon each other my fingers stiffening and chafing as I write and read and listen and write. And then suddenly the messages stop arriving, and this time I am not disappointed, but patient and faithful. This is all part of it, a natural escalation. Our affair is being directed to its climax. I sit on my knees and close my eyes in something close to sleep, and I wait. And then it's some awful hour of some awful night, because I am no longer keeping track of such things, and my phone begins to ring. It's been silent for weeks, but now it begins to ring, tinnily and gloriously, and as I scramble to pick it up and press it to my ear, there's only silence, a faint background hum or buzz. I say, David Ward? As if it's a question, and not a statement. 
a moment of static, and then the first voice says my name, David Ward. The second voice, in agreement or an echo, repeats, David Ward. The first voice says, I'm coming. The second voice repeats, I'm coming. And I answer back, enthralled, I'm coming, I'm coming. I know, of course, where I can find them. They've never been shy about telling me. Cropper's Square, in the old town of Askew, is dominated by the public garden that lies at its centre, a towering construction of tapering hedges, impossibly high cypress trees, and immaculately crafted shrubs that shift into the darkened shapes of spheres and cubes. The dark pavement is caught in perfect golden spotlights from the lampposts above. This place is a lover's meeting spot, if it's ever been anything. I come running up from the metro station, the collar of my coat hooked up around my face to keep the driving rain out of my throat, and I walk around the square to the north side, where the blank brick wall of number 14 stands, set into the wall between two houses. I'm turning the first corner. I'm turning the second. And then all of a sudden I can see a single figure beneath an old brown umbrella in the driving rain, stood facing the brick-and-mortar jigsaw of the empty wall, its face turned away from me. It's Mr. Howe, or Mrs. Y. I loiter by the iron railings of the garden, watching the shape in stillness and perfect silence, waiting for something else to emerge. A minute passes, and another minute and then it hits me that perhaps I am Mrs. Howe or Mr. Y, and I've been stood here waiting for the second actor to arrive, when in fact this entire show has been put on for my benefit and my participation. Something has been moving the pieces into place this entire time, crafting a kind of false courtship for the sake of a very real fusion at the end of it all. I'm coming, I whisper aloud. I'm yours. I'm coming now and I cross the square in great confident strides, placing a hand on the figure's shoulder, ready to lock eyes and gain some great new understanding. And as the figure turns to face me, I find myself looking at something which is not Mr. Howe or Mrs. Y, and I am not looking into its eyes, since its eyes are not level, since one eye is brown and set into the undulating flesh of two merged foreheads, and the other eye is bright sapphire blue and protruding from a bulging throat that has conjoined with a second paler throat. The thing that is both Mr. Howe and Mrs. Y opens its mouth, a shark's mouth with two sets of teeth coalesced into the same mangled gums, and reaches out one distorted hand to my shoulder. I can't tell you how it feels at that moment to witness absolute beauty but I can tell you that I find myself utterly lacking in my ability to accept it. Something in me breaks. I stumble back into the road, tripping over my own heels as I retreat without a thought or an idea in my head, and the thing that is neither Mr. Howe nor Mrs. Y utters a sound in two voices at once, tottering eagerly towards me, swaying and contorting as if still uncertain of its own feet. And the strangest thing is that even as I turn and dash madly away from that hideous and happy face, composed of two distinct faces, 
I don't remember exactly what it called out to me, whether its words formed into the familiar syllables of You're mine, or I'm yours. It comes as a considerable relief returning home to discover that I've been robbed. The front door hangs open. The kitchen window is broken and the flesh flower has been snatched from its bars. I try not to pay too much attention to the fragments of glass lying in the gutter outside the window, which could lead me to strange or troubling conclusions. In askew, you tend to develop a kind of practical discretion about these things. Instead, I tape up the hole, scoop up the plain brown envelopes into a rubbish bag, and deposit them outside. By the morning, they'll be gone. I block up the front door with a chair, and then the kitchen table, and then another chair, and the thick, comforting weight of the television on top of it all. At about three in the morning, there's a heavy thud and the shattering of glass as the television falls, but I remain quite silent, and whatever's happened soon ceases to happen. The Saturday after next, I am disturbed but not surprised to read in the askew tribunal of a peculiar double murder that's taken place in the city, in separate locations three and a half miles from each other. The victims are difficult to identify. They are both naked, partially intact, and partially missing, as if some unseen force simply decided one morning to dislodge one eye or an arm or half of a ribcage and carry it away elsewhere for reasons unknown. Between the two of them, they pretty much make up one complete carcass, although curiously, some pieces seem to overlap. The victims' cupboards have been ransacked, emptied of clothes and identifying documents and personal effects. The missing parts and organs are never found. There's no indication, according to the tribunal, that either victim ever had knowledge of, or correspondence with, each other. I'm much better now, by the way. Whatever mania took hold of me has passed. I can no longer remember many of the letters I read or the messages I transcribed, and when I try to recall the exact wording of the correspondence, it seems absurdly overwrought, nonsensical, hard to imagine how it could ever have exerted such a hold on me. There's a touch of sadness in that. I've lost something. A sense of connection, of purpose and possibility. Something was crafted for me by this city, and like the correspondence editor, I didn't have the strength to accept it. Some nights I stare into the bathroom mirror and try to imagine my lined, hungry face merging into the impossible, multiple features of the thing that was both how and why, drooling and blinking in perfect harmony with the entirety of it, and try as I might, I just can't do it. That's about all we have time for. But the next time you hear my voice, I'll be discussing the language of the city, and it's curious not to mention indistinct etymology. Please, tell your friends about Askew. I think they deserve to hear this. Be with you again this time next week.
Askew is a completed story that runs to 30 episodes. You can listen to more of Askew and learn about their next project over at IamInAskew.com or follow them at Askew underscore podcast on Twitter. One of the support actions they ask you to take is a donation to a missing persons charity, like Missing People in the UK or Lost and Missing in the USA. We'll provide links in the episode description. If you follow us on Twitter, you may have already heard about the Writers Guild of America Audio Alliance. This organizing effort within the WGA is for scripted podcast writers, fiction and nonfiction, and Radio Drama Revival was able to host an interview about it. We'll be speaking with Lowell Peterson, the executive director of the WGA East, Matt Klinman, and Lisette Alvarez, who are two of the organizers. That episode is coming out Sunday, October 18th. If you haven't already, give the WGA a follow on Twitter over at WGA Audio. You can learn more about them and about the event they're hosting on October 26th, a panel talk on the art of audio fiction with greats like Dania Ramos, Lauren Shippen, and Megan Fitzmartin, moderated by Gabriel Ulpina. Radio Drama Revival runs on your goodwill and pictures of Fred's goats. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Other than Patreon, you can also support Radio Drama Revival by buying merch at our shop at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. If you put one of our stickers on a telephone pole, hopefully it will still be there the next day. The telephone pole, I mean. And now we bring you our moment of will. Junji Ito, you say? Y'all, I love some Junji Ito. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Junji Ito is a manga creator, uh, both a writer and an artist who deals in some of the very best body horror. Now, body horror is like really hit or miss for me. I think that the human body by itself is absolutely fucking vile. I think it is so gross. Uh, I do not enjoy existing inside of human form. And so, uh, like a lot of body horror, it gets me. But Junji Ito's body horror, it gets me in the right way. So let's talk about Junji Ito's uh, most famous works, both of which I recommend you check out. They are not for the faint of heart, but they're both really phenomenal. So the first is Uzumaki, which is a long-running series in which uh, a town is... Oh, oh boy. A town is obsessed with spirals following a strange natural occurrence that deals with spirals. Uh, Uzumaki, again, is long-running, and I would say that it's fairly inconsistent. Um, Some issues are phenomenal, especially the early issues. Some issues, not so great, a little bit hokey, especially as it goes on. But those first few issues hot damn. Uh, They are iconic. They are incredible. And one thing Junji Ito is known for is using the mechanic of a page flip to essentially convey a jump scare in a comic, which is brilliant. Uzumaki, you can find a lot online. You can also obviously purchase collections, which I recommend you do. Um, It's gross. 
It's incredible. It's strange. But if you're looking for something that is a little bit shorter, um, a, a little bit perhaps more more internet famous other than a few images of Uzumaki, I would highly recommend finding the issue The Enigma of Amigara Fault, which comes from the collection Gyo, which is... It rules. Uh, if you have seen the image where a dude is, like, climbing into a sort of, like, crevice like a person-shaped hole in a mountain and saying, like, this is my hole. It was made for me. Um, it has been used as a meme many times for good reason. Uh, that comes from the Enigma of Amigara Fault. And uh, if you've only seen that image, buckle in. The Enigma of Amigara Fault is essentially uh, a, a fault opens up and inside it has holes into the earth that are shaped like people and people are obsessed with the idea completely uh completely compulsed to find the hole that is specifically theirs and everybody does have a hole that is specifically theirs um they have to go find it they can't not what happens once they find it is you know, I'll just I'll just let you figure that out when you read it. So so those are my two recommendations. They are Junji Ito's like most well-known works, Uzumaki and The Enigma of Amigara Fault. You can find both of those online. I don't think that I'm going to include a link in the show notes because I to be honest, even though these have existed online for a really long time, I don't really feel great about linking to them online. I would highly prefer you to purchase Uzumaki and Gyo. Maybe, you know what, I will link to where you can purchase those. So, uh, uh happy spooky season and enjoy! That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Athafaladi tribe, Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are seeking ways in which to donate to Native communities, the Aniwa Gathering of Elders and the Boel Foundation are raising community relief funds for six reservations, Oglala Lakota, Hopi, Lenape Ramapo, Apache, Dine Navajo, and Toono Oatam communities. You can donate at www.gofundme.com f slash support dash indigenous dash communities dash in dash USA. The link will be in our episode description. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Fear Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalgh and David Randstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. <laughs>